I don't know if you've ever been at a place where God is tiring or boring or dull or wearisome. Apparently, there's a lot of people who find church that way or the Bible or worship. Now, I'm not talking about those seasons we go through. I know we've all been through some sort of a season where God doesn't feel as close as he once was, or it's harder to connect. I'm not talking about that. Those are seasons. Those are patterns of growth that we go through. But have you ever had a a time in your life where it it was hard to just find interest in God? Just worship wasn't turning you on the right way? Or the Bible seemed to have nothing to offer. I think a lot of people get to that place where God can become wearisome to us. And yeah, on one hand, maybe it's the way that people talk about God makes them very uninteresting. But on the other hand, maybe there's something going on with me. I've found that when... God is wearisome to me. There's three possibilities lurking that has sort of caused a little wane in my devotion or my interest in him. And you know, you know this begins to happen because the things of the world or things that you know are not of eternal value begin to grow ever so subtly more important in your life. And you just get this lack of balance. That's what we're talking about. And, and the whole idea of God can just sometimes feel like a chore, like a burden. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So what's wrong? What's happening? Well, in this text, jumping out at me were the three possibilities that I've found are true in my own life when I ever find my faith a bit wearisome. So, I want to turn your attention to... Chapter 43, verse 22, and then, we'll, and then we'll go back through this text. 43, verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. This is God speaking. You did not call upon me, O Jacob. You can put your name in there. O Brandon, O Ron, O Mike. You have not, you did not call upon me. But you have been weary of me, O Brandon. So we're in this section of Isaiah where our prophet Isaiah has turned his attention to the future Jews who will be exiled, removed from their homeland to be in another pagan country called Babylon. Their temple would be destroyed. Jerusalem would be a heap of rubble. And the kingdom that they once knew would be gone. They would be foreigners in a foreign land with foreign gods. Isaiah is talking to them, saying, look, when this day comes, you will need encouragement. You will need comfort. And as I've been studying through these chapters with you guys, I'm realizing that Isaiah senses the people will lose heart 
That seems to be jumping out to me. And so what he's doing is he's trying to give them heart. He's trying to call them into strength, into something. When life beats you down and you're weary of it and it's just, you can't keep going. Isaiah's trying to call these people up off the ground and say, no, no, no. God has comfort for us and he has a path for us and he's taking us somewhere. So if you remember, the section of Isaiah starts in chapter 40. And in chapter 40, verse 3, we're introduced to this way, which we will get more into in the future. 40, verse 3, we see, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. It'll be easy walking. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So Israel is separated from their homeland, all the way in Babylon, by an expanse of wilderness. And God is saying to them, just like I brought you through the wilderness from Egypt to your promised land hundreds of years ago, I will now bring you through the wilderness from Babylon back to your homeland again. And you might remember when we studied chapter 40 that Jesus has this passage applied to him, that he's the one leading us through the wilderness to our home. Now, of course, we get weary. And the travel is not easy. So Isaiah 40, verse 28. This is where we saw that God will give us provision for the journey. 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So this way through the wilderness, God's going to give us wings and say, you can do this. However, the last couple weeks, we ran into some weights. We ran into some hurdles. It's really hard to fly when you got a bunch of idols to tote around. And that's what Isaiah has warned them about. He says, your idolatry is not going to get you through this wilderness. It will not help you fly. We need to let go of these idols. So we've looked at that. Uh, Chapter 44 is really hilarious in how he takes us through the Build Your Own God workshop. They pick out the trees. They carve it just the way they want. And he's really making light of it. Um, And then in chapter 46, back to the weariness, 46 verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Those are Babylonian gods. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. 
These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Israel, you have to carry your own idols. They don't walk themselves. So, we see that we will never grow out of our weariness. We'll never grow wings if we're going to continue to give our worship and our strength and our power to those things which cannot grow us wings and help us soar. We will always be weary and stuck in the wilderness. So idolatry is the big problem, which then leads us to Isaiah's solution. If we're to get to this path that God has for us through the wilderness, if we're to grow our own wings and idolatry is in the way, Here's the remedy. The greatness of God. The greatness of God trumps idolatry. And that's why Isaiah can poke fun at it. He's like, look, in light of our great God, idolatry is pathetic. Even the last week, we saw how powerful and dark and sinister idolatry can be. Isaiah can say, in light of his greatness, it, these little idols are like dust that you wipe off of your desk when you sit down. Or the pollen that fluffs up when you sit on an outside chair. Boy, has that been bad this year. That's what idols are compared to God. And so what Isaiah wants to do in to help encourage and strengthen the people and us and to get us away from the weight of false gods and false things in the creation itself that we give our love and devotion to, he wants us to put our eyes on the great and the grandeur and the splendor and the power of God himself. So, originally I had planned to do the three chapters that really address the greatness of God all in one night. Then I was like, eh, we'll just do chapter three tonight. So, um, the chapters are chapter 43, which we'll do tonight, and then in the upcoming week or weeks, um, it's also going to be 45, which is where God's going to say, I see the future I make the future happen. No one can get in the way of it. Even if they were to fumble around with my plans, I can recreate the future because I'm God. Tell your idol to do that. And then in 48, um, we're going to see more of God's greatness. Okay, so that's, that's what we're looking at here. So, chapter 43 tonight. So... You're tired of God, huh? Is he making you wearisome? You're missing it. God should not be the one that makes us weary or makes us tired. And if that is the case, we need to re-examine which God we're worshiping. Because as we've just seen in Isaiah, our God does not make us carry him. He carries us. So we saw just now, 43.22, in tonight's text. It's not my fault. You did not call on me, O Brandon. But you have been weary of me, O Brandon. Why do we get weary of God? Why do we sometimes act like he's not giving us wings to soar, but rather he's going to give me a task or something I don't want to do and it's going to cramp what I had planned today? Why do we sometimes get like that? When I find God wearisome, there's three possibilities lurking underneath the surface. So let's look at them. The first one we're going to see in verses 1 through 7. I'll hold off what it is for suspense. 43 verse 1. But now, thus says Yahweh, He who created you, 
O Jacob. He who formed you, O Brandon. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That alone should suffice. Fear not, I created you. I redeemed you. I called you by name. You're mine. But now, in case we're not putting it together, he gives us some examples. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned And the flame shall not consume you, for I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, please don't try walking on water tonight. Okay, that's... Don't try walking on water or fire. I don't know which I said, but... Don't, don't try that tonight, okay? This, this passage is not saying, because you're gods, you will never be burned. It's talking about the circumstances of life and the way they press us and squeeze us and drain us of all of our energy and ability to walk with God and to keep going through the wilderness. Those things that keep us away from what God is trying to bring us to, they will not prevail. That's what it's saying here. God is just throwing it down saying, you shall not prevail against my people. So, in case we doubt this, verse 3 gives us more. Uh, we did verse 3. Verse, middle of verse 3. You are mine. So I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Friends, God sees us as more valuable than the economies and the kingdoms and the treasures of complete nations. And Egypt was one of the best in the world. I would give all of that up for you, to ransom you, to deliver you from your bondage. Four, verse four, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. And God will make good on that claim when he sends his own son for us. Verse 5, so as he already said, now he's coming back to conclude, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's who he's reclaiming. Everyone who is called by his name, whom he created for his glory. Those are the ones he's protecting. Those are the ones he's guiding through the wilderness. Those are the ones he's throwing the treasures of nations out to redeem. Those he created for his glory. Friends, I find God wearisome when I minimize his glory. He created me. He created us 
for his glory. And when I minimize this glory thing that God is about, I find him a little dull. I find him a little lackluster. Now, this is not to say, this is too shallow if we say, God's boring, so we need to make him exciting, spice it up. That's way too shallow. And our nation is really into that kind of thing. Just excite me, just entertain me. We're not looking for God to excite us and entertain us. We're looking for him to satisfy us, to fulfill us, to lead us, and to give us purpose. Why? We're looking for him to save us, to redeem us, to take us through the rivers and, and through the fires. Why? For his glory. Because we were created so that he could receive all the fame, all the praise, all the beauty, all the adoration, all the glory from what he does for us. This is why he's going through everything he can. He's throwing treasures to get us because his glory is worth more than world loads of treasure. God's like, the world, Egypt, Sebo, this creation is an overflow of my glory. And this is just one way to do it. God created us for his glory. Glory. It's one of those words, I, I read someone say, it's one of those words that it's hard to define but easy to show. I like to think of glory, and we talked about this in Ezekiel. In, um, you might remember the message, the weight of glory. In Ezekiel, we see the glory of God leaving the temple. And there we talked about his glory being that which gives him substance and weight. It's that which makes him a, th- I shouldn't say a thing. Um, it's that which makes him solid compared to the vanity or the futility or the emptiness of idols and every other created thing human beings put their devotion and worship into. So those things are hollow compared to the hallowedness of God. That's his glory. It's substantial. It's so real. It's so fulfilling that everything else is a shadow of this glory. That's one way to think of it. Another way to think of his glory also is the beauty of it. Um, Not just the presence of it, but the beauty of it. And I just, it actually hit me during worship while Richard was leading us uh, in, in worship, that that which makes you turn your head. The glory of God is that which makes us turn our head. Now, I don't mean like you're walking in the mall, and, ooh, a sale. Like, <laughs> the glory of sales, right? This, is, this kind of glory is that which turns the head of the entire creation, that when he appears, eat the Psalms, and I will see later in the section of Isaiah in chapter 55, even the trees will begin to clap their hands at his appearing. That's glory when it can turn the head of every atom in the cosmos. Whoa, what's that? That's what he created us for. His glory. Now, I think sometimes we minimize this glory because we get in this very like pessimistic and superficial human way of thinking like, well, God, aren't you just so narcissistic? Always asking me for my praise, always asking for my worship and always wanting to be the only savior. Is it wrong of God to demand our praise? 
Now, if I demanded praise from you guys, you'd probably think he is really insecure. (laughs) Or the infamous, does this dress make me look fat? (laughs) That is not what God is after. God is completely secure in who he is. Do you realize that? He doesn't need the human race to worship him to suddenly feel good about himself. Now, when I was growing up, I was always told that God created us so that we could worship him. Um, That's not wrong. But the way it was always described was the point was that we exalt him. I've begun to see it differently. And I don't just mean recently, but like the, the second part of my life. I begin to realize what it is is that God was totally sufficient in and of himself And because he's a triune being, right, we call it the Trinity. We have Father, we have Son, we have Holy Spirit. And don't try to figure, like, don't get all hooked, messed up on this. All we need to understand is that God, when you examine what God is, is he's a relationship of constant love and adoration for itself or himself. That the Father and the Son are exchanging glory, and the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Father. They're all exchanging eternal glory, and they're completely satisfied in themselves, right? Because that glory is continually cycling through. And so one day, God wants to bring others into this glory. So he creates the universe as an outflow of his glory, and then so that he can bring others into this completeness that he is. God is the ultimate good of the universe. The ultimate good. If God did not command us to worship the ultimate good of the universe, that would be unloving and selfish. I've got this ultimate good, but it's only for me. The ultimate good of the universe, the ultimate glory, is inviting us because it wants us to be complete like he is. It wants us to enjoy his presence. That glory, our God, he created us for his glory. So yes, we come to him, we give him praises, but it's not because he needs it, it's because we get to. We are invited through worship and praise and adoration We are invited to participate in the glory of God. And that satisfies us. That fills us. That which fills the universe will fill us. That is good news. And that's what God created us for. And that's why he can throw all the treasures of the world and say, I don't care about that. I care about you. Because I want my people to become more real and more substantial, more solid than the very idols that the world is worshiping. I want them filled with my life. It's been said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Why? Because when I'm finally satisfied in him and not in the idolatry of this world or the created things that I ooh and all over, my, the works of my hands, when I'm finally satisfied in him, it makes him look better than everything else, even the treasures of Egypt. That's what he's after. He's after his glory because he wants you and I to be fulfilled and satisfied and complete. He wants us to grow the wings he said we would have so that we could soar. So God becomes wearisome to me when I minimize this glory. 
And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's like, you know, he's the higher power. That's it. He's a little more than a higher power. It's just like saying, well, yeah, there's all the powers, but he's just a little higher. You're, mi- you're missing the idea of glory. So when I minimize his glory, of course God becomes worrisome because he's just a little bit better than everything else. Second, verses 8 to 13. I find God wearisome when, verse 8, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. That's us. Who are deaf, yet have ears. Also us. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? A theme that will be emphasized later. God's ability to tell the future. So, Gather everyone together, all the nations. and Who among them can proclaim the former things? Um, I guess that, that's the past things. Let them bring their witness to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. But God turns to Israel. He turns to us and says, this is verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the declares Yahweh. And I am God. And henceforth, I am he. In other words, I am God, I was God, I always will be God. That's not changing. So, and henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Through all this, he's saying, hey, bring the best of the world in, and let them prove that they've been right. But then God turns the corner and says, look, you guys have been my witnesses, and you know that before there was any idols or any false gods or any Babylonian empire, Egyptian empire, before any of these things, I was your God, your Savior, your only Savior. And I always will be. I was God. I am God. I have been God. I always will be God forever and ever and ever and ever. You're my witnesses to this. I find God can become wearisome when I belittle his sovereignty. Yeah, we minimize his glory. And connected with that, really, is that I, I belittle his sovereignty. I start to think, hmm, maybe God doesn't have everything in control. Or maybe God is sort of a victim of my decisions. Or maybe I did blow it, and now he cannot possibly do anything. We're going to see later. The sovereignty is going to come up much stronger in the future chapters of Isaiah. God, he's like, I don't 
think you, little human being who can create a cute little stone idol, I don't think you could possibly ruin what I'm up to. I am God. There's, there's no other savior than me. Don't belittle my sovereignty. I can call the future into being. I'm the one who created the universe. Don't belittle my sovereignty. And I love this part, verse 13. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. I need, I think America needs, we need a big God. We need a God who's bigger than our problems, bigger than our politics, bigger than our national security, bigger than our economic crisis. We need a God who's bigger than our divisions, who's bigger than race, who's bigger than this religion versus that religion, who's bigger than our universities, who's bigger than our youth and what they're being pulled astray. And we need the sovereignty of God, and we need to restake our confidence in him who holds everything together. And when he works, nobody's going to mess with that without his permission. He's going to hold it. He's going to hold it together so that we can be held together. But see, I try to hold things together, and then it's like, oh, now i got to hold God together. Friends, If we've got to hold things together, then God's part of that. And that's when he becomes wearisome. Good luck holding that together. We need to be held by him. And it's when we're trying to hold it together, that's idolatry in Isaiah. Go back to 46. They're carrying their own gods. 44, it's the work of their own hands. But it's it's the sovereignty of God, which enables me to not be wearied by him but to be satisfied by him because I am not sovereign so what happens is I make plans I have intentions and goals and desires and because I'm not sovereign people problems complaints the events of life itself get in the way and ruin all my plans right we know that it's called frustration You think you're going on vacation to finish that book you've been waiting to read. (laughs) Setting yourself up for frustration. But think about this. God is sovereign, which means he can do whatever he wants without any frustration. That makes him really happy. Which makes him anything but worrisome to be around. Now, I know when I'm frustrated... I'm more or less a nice chap to be around. I can be wearisome to others. You know, but with God, he's happy because he's sovereign. He's like that grandfather you can curl into the lap of. You're not afraid he's going to be bothered or put out or, oh, I was about to do something. He's got it all under control. So now he can give his best to us. So, I get worried of God when I minimize his glory, when I belittle his sovereignty. And finally, let's look at verse 14. When I limit him, I'll actually give it to you early this time. When I limit him to history. I get worried by God when I limit him to history. So in verse 14, he says this. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 
for your sake. I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. They think they're having such a good time. I'll bring them down. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What is that alluding to? God, when he parted the Red Sea and led his people through, Look, I'm that God. So now remembering his history, right? Oh yeah, God did this in the past. Well, verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. So you know the Exodus when I part the Red Sea and saved you guys that way. Don't even think about that. What? Why? Because in verse 19, behold, I am doing a new thing. I don't want you stuck in what I used to do because I'm doing something new and I don't want you looking back there and missing what I'm doing up here. I want you looking up here, expectant and waiting for the new thing I'm doing. I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And the answer is no. If you're stuck limiting God's work now to what he used to do, you will not perceive the new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We're going to miss it, though if we continually think that the only way God works is the way he used to do it. I was this last week at the Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And it was really it was a good conference. I was challenged. There's a lot of new things to think about. And they really like took on some cultural things like, let's just, we'll stop ignoring these and let's just, like deal with this. Let's equip the church to go headlong into the world and say, we're here and we're not selling out. It was great. What was also really encouraging was the fact that there was hope. There was hope there at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. There was hope that God is still working now. And he's working in ways that we are not expecting. And we're trying to open up, we're trying to raise our sails to be open to whichever way the spirit of God's wind is blowing. You see, there, there was a time not that long ago when the whole conversation was always, but God used to do it this way. So we're going to try to replicate this all the time. No, 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 no. The, the, the wind always blows east, so you got to set the sail up that way, you rookie. But you're going to miss the wind. You're going to miss God's present work. Now, I, I think Greg Laurie says this all the time. Like, the gospel doesn't change, but the way we talk about it can and, and really should because it's really communicating God's news, and however people listen is the way you got to say it. <laughs> um, like, so we're not talking about the fact that God just like, eh, truth is old stuff, relativity. That's like how I work now. We're not like saying anything like that. 
what we're saying is that God refuses to work one way so that we don't keep on looking back and saying, oh, yeah, it's a formula. All you got to do is hocus pocus kaboom. <laughs> no, <laughs> that would be idolatry. And that's actually what idolatry literally was in their rituals and liturgies of worship was reenacting the seasons with their idols and their consorts of prostitutes in the temple. They were just basically trying to reenact the cycles of, of spring, winter, fall, and summer and make the gods do their thing again over and over and over and over. In fact, most of history was just simply seen as a cycle that repeats over and over until the God of Israel spoke and said, no, we aren't just going to repeat the same old thing over and over. I am God. I started this world back here and I am taking it somewhere. He, he took the cycle of time and straightened it into a straight line and said, we're going somewhere. I want my people looking at me as I lead them through this way in the wilderness. And so we can continue to say, oh, yeah, 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 no, no, I got baptized 15 years ago. I had this camp experience last summer. I did my devotions a month ago in the Bible. It was really good. We can continue to look backward, but we're going to completely miss where God's taking us. And that's how you end up 40 years in the wilderness over and over. So what he's saying is, do not remember the former things nor consider the things of old. As often in poetry, it's an overstatement. It's not saying... How dare you think about what God did in your life in the past? That's not what it's saying. It's, it's exaggerating to bring out the, the opposite point. Don't emphasize the past. Emphasize what God is doing now. What's his activity in your life around you? Uh, but when I used to do this, I didn't have these problems. Now I have these problems. The problem of your problem is you're saying I used to. You got to look at what is now. God is doing something with your present circumstance that he wants you to see Oh, I've been minimizing his glory. I should maybe maximize that. Oh, I've been, um, yeah, I kind of forgot about his sovereignty. I've been belittling that a little bit. Maybe I should re-trust his sovereignty again. Maybe the situation you're in is so that he can show you the waters will not rise above your head and the fires will not burn you and that he will throw all the treasures of the cosmos just to redeem you and say, you're mine. God wants us looking for his activity here and forward so that we keep following him. And I think, so what we see at the end of this, go back to verse 21. Um, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Watch going forward so you can praise me. But verse 2, now we've come full circle. Verse 22, yet, I want them to declare my praise. Yet, you did not Call upon me, O Brandon, and you've been weary of me because I've minimized his glory, I've belittled his sovereignty, and I've limited him to history. Verse 23, you have not brought me your sheep or burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. Sometimes we stop bringing things to God. We're like, oh, he made me. No. God right there said, I have not burdened you with these things. 
You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and have wearied me with your iniquities. I have not once laid a weight upon you, but you just keep on doing your thing, your idolatry, putting this weight upon me. And friends, I fear that when God is wearisome to us, it's because we're in the throes of idolatry. The aim of idolatry is to minimize his glory. It's to belittle his sovereignty. And it's to limit him as a relic of past things God used to do when he was popular. Just to repeat and remind you, chapter 46, verse 1, we have to carry the idols. We have to carry them. But in 46.4, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. 46.7, they lift the idol to their shoulders. They carry it, and there set it in its place, and it stands there, and it cannot move. Remember God saying, I didn't command this burden on you. It's your lack of recognizing who I am in my glory that has made everything a burden to you. Your lack of recognizing my sovereignty that has made coming to me a burden to you. It's your lack of realizing my activity in the present and my ability for the future that has caused me to be a burden to you. So I just, I mean, I actually, uh, in prepping this message, had like so many different ways I went with this, but this, is, this ended up being the way we went with it. Um, one of the things that just kept resonating through every time I read the text is I believe that God wants us to know tonight, because this isn't like new, but sometimes it's new to us because we've been living in a different way. Um, but God wants us to know tonight that it's okay to enjoy him. It really is okay to enjoy him. It's not like the more burdensome worshiping God is, the more genuine your worship is. That's ridiculous. That's awful. We get in this mindset that what makes God great is what I achieve for him. So we go out as a martyr. We sacrifice everything dear in our lives. Even in very negative ways. And then we come like, I did this. Why would God be made great by what I achieved for him? That would make me great. And ultimately, that's what we're secretly craving is greatness. And so we think, ah, I got to make this happen. It's not what makes God great. That's what makes God wearisome, is what I have to achieve for him. What makes God great is not what I achieve for him, but it's what I receive from him. That's what makes God great. And that's what he's been saying in this text. Yep, you're going to be, let's just paraphrase verse 2. You're going to be stuck in a rock in a hard place. But I'm going to get you out of it. Okay, who's great there? God got you out of that one. He's, wow, he's pretty good. 
Okay, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You pull out a stick of dynamite and you blow it all up. Who's great there? Me for carrying dynamite, just in case. You would all marvel at that person. Who does that? God wants to be glorified because he wants us to enjoy him. I know it seems weird. It almost seems like you have to do one or the other. Like, well, we are the glorifying God. We're enjoying him. It's like, give our joy to him, and now he's glorified. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want us coming in like, ugh, such a burden. He's so wearisome. Does that make God look great when all his followers are like, ugh? I mean, we don't want a famine, so we better worship him. That was paganism. That was idolatry. God was completely inverting the religious systems of the day and saying, that's not how we do it with me. I will be made great because of what you receive from me. So please come open-armed and needy. Please come in all your desperateness, your sinfulness, your lameness, your deafness, your blindness. Please come. You who are weary, please come to me. Not because I'm the one making you weary, because life has made you weary. I want to be made great in your life. And we come eagerly. Is that okay to want to worship God? Is it okay to find pleasure in worshiping God? Is it okay to find joy in being with his people? Yes. That's the best way. Because that is when God is glorified. Is when I'm enjoying him. It is hard to put our minds around the idea of God. Let's bring this down to earth a little bit. Let's pretend... I'm a world-class chef. And I labor in my kitchen. And I lay out a grand feast that you are invited to come and eat. Now, let's take two examples, shall we? Micah and Ron. That's what you get for sitting right in the front. All right. Micah comes in, and he sits down, and he starts, well, I, you know, it's, it's, it's so fancy. I mean, can I even cut into this food? I'm afraid I'm going to spoil it. And everything, he's just complaining, right? Oh, oh, the, the drinks are too delicious to drink. You know, I, 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 they got to be cherished right where they are. And, and, and then, you know, when he's all done, he kind of pushes it aside. And, and then he pulls out of his backpack a brown paper bag and, and unfolds it and brings out cut triangle style peanut butter jelly sandwich <laughs> and puts that on the plate. And he begins to eat that. I, I didn't want to put you through all this trouble, Brandon. So I, I brought my own. Okay. Well, I feel pretty lame. Mike would never do that. Ron, on the other hand, comes in. And the guy won't stop eating my food. And he keeps banging his plate with his fork. More! More! <laughs> and I can't even leave the kitchen because he keeps wanting more and I can't make it fast enough. And he finishes and he lets out a gigantic belch <laughs> and lays down on the floor and moans. Okay. 
so obviously two very extreme examples, but who made me look like a better chef? The person who brought a peanut butter and jelly just in case I can't really cook? Or the person who could not stop receiving from my cooking? Yet somehow when it comes to God, we think being a little shy or being... I'm trying not to use the word conservative because it has political overtones. Uh, but it was now that I, So don't think politics. We somehow think that being overly conservative about his gifts are somehow honoring him. God wants to pour out of his abundance into our lives. He wants us to come to him and enjoy him. He wants us to find pleasure in him. The Psalms tell us, delight yourself in the Lord. I think that's Psalm 37. Psalm 16 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Another Psalm says that you give me more joy than they have when their wine and grain abound. Or the message literally puts, you give me more joy than those who are on a shopping spree. Just to put in perspective, this is the God the Psalms honor. It's this God who says, I created you for my glory. And it turns out that if you stop minimizing my glory, belittling my sovereignty, and limiting me to history, if you start letting me be God who holds you, you will find that not only am I made great, but you are satisfied. So the person who eats from my cooking, the more satisfied they are, the more glorified my food is, or the worker of the food. It's the same with God. God wants his people to enjoy him. He wants us to enjoy him. So when you and I feel wearied by him, when we feel bored or tired or just kind of, I don't want to put God out with my requests and all, That's when we start slipping into idolatry because it's easier. Oh, now I can achieve something. No. So I want to I take us to one passage and finish there. Psalm chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50. And I'm going to summarize it while you turn to Psalm 50. It basically says, In God's hand is the universe. Everything in it, right there. He's got it. Tell me what you could possibly give him then that he doesn't already have. That's what this psalm's about. Psalm 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle. On a thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Obviously, now we know everything's his. No, you don't. So that means is, do I need your sacrifices to keep me going? Nope. So, verse 14. 
This, then, is what we can give God, okay? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You shall make me look weighty in this superficial world. You shall cause the heads of your neighbors to turn when they see what I'm doing in your life. That's what it means. Call on me, I'll deliver you and you shall glorify me. How do we do that? Not by achieving great things for God, but by receiving great things for God. Hence, give him thanksgiving. You gave us so much. Thank you. Hence, perform your vows. That's something we don't really practice or even do much these days. But then uh, call upon me in the day of trouble. You're in between a rock and a hard place. Call upon me. I will, be, I will look so good doing it. So, there you have it. That's what we are called to do. Receive and acknowledge that he is the giver of all good things. And this is where we get to receive the greatest gift of all that he gave to each of us equally. Himself. Represented with the bread, it's his broken body. And the cup, it's his poured blood. Now, I'm not going to make you jump through hoops to receive it. I'm not going to make you say some fancy prayer. This is you receiving what God has already given. So, brothers and sisters, it was at this supper, in John chapter 13, when Jesus got up to wash the feet of his disciples. And watching it come down the line, Dirty feet becoming clean, dirty feet becoming clean, smelly becoming wildflower scented. (laughs) Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus simply answers, if I don't, you have no part in me. To which Peter then goes the other extreme, well, then wash me from head to toe. But it's that initial response of Peter's, you will never serve me, I must serve you. That's what Jesus rebukes, is our nature to resist his serving us, his coming to us. But friends, we just need to enjoy God and let him take delight in serving us and let us take delight in him being good to us. And then, bye-bye burdens, bye-bye wearisome pagan idolatrous deity, and hello, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, whom Israel called Yahweh. Let's pray.